You know, podcast family, I've been out of residency for some time now. I'm not going to tell you how long, but for some time. And still without fail, whenever I enter into any, quote, routine, end quote, surgery, I still get that little palpitation in my heart. I still get that little angst, that little nervous feeling because, you know, if you're like me, you know, I just don't want to hurt anybody. I've got plenty of experience. We've done some very complicated cases, but it still hits me. Why? Because the fear of intra-op bleeding is real, and I still worry about things like post-op infection and post-op thromboembolism. I mean, maybe I'm just too type A, which obviously that's the case, but it still haunts me, and I'm still very preoccupied that for every surgery. Well, in this episode, we're going to talk about two of those things because they're intimately related, the risk of bleeding in surgery and the development of thromboembolic events, because we're going to talk about bridging therapy. Is that still relevant and how is it done? Well, it was a big thing when I trained, and back then, one of the most commonly used chronic anticoagulants was warfarin. But now we have newer oral agents. So how do they fit into this picture? So we're going to discuss bridging therapy for the patients on chronic anticoagulation and how it's done before gynecological surgery and when it's not actually required. Ready? Let's cover bridging therapy for the gynecological patient right now. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. For Luis and Ana, bridging therapy before surgery refers to the temporary interruption of established anticoagulation and a transition or a bridge to a slower-acting agent, typically unfractionated heparin or low-molecular-weight heparin. This is in the immediate perioperative interval with a plan to reestablish the former anticoagulation once hemostasis has been reasonably assured. The decision to bridge a patient involves that careful balancing act between stopping the anticoagulant medication and risking VTE recurrence as opposed to continuing with some anticoagulation agent and risking intraoperative or postoperative bleeding. Women with a low thromboembolic risk do not require bridging therapy. But here's a clinical pearl. With the more widespread use of direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, bridging largely can be avoided in the vast majority of patients. Don't worry, I'm going to explain how that works and how that looks like and who that actually applies to in just a minute. So that's the first clinical pearl right at the start of the podcast. Direct oral anticoagulants in general do not require bridging therapy unless there's an expected prolonged time that the patient may not be able to take the oral medication. For example, there's a lot of bowel work or bowel resection with an ileus resulting or the patient is unresponsive. So we'll cover direct oral anticoagulants in just a bit. For the purpose of this podcast, rather than saying direct oral anticoagulants every time, we will say DOAC. So for this episode, we'll cover patients on established anticoagulation with either warfarin as the traditional and historic oral anticoagulant or on DOACs, since those on heparin therapy is kind of a no-brainer. You stop the heparin for at least 12 to 24 hours pre-op and then restart the heparin as early as 12 hours to 24 hours later based on risk for perioperative bleeding. So regular unfractionated heparin is easy. It's the issue with the oral agents where things get kind of tricky, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. 
Well, let's just get to the spoiler right now. Even though we're going to talk about direct oral anticoagulants, I just got to lay it out right now at the beginning. It is only required to do bridging therapy when a patient is on warfarin, not on a direct oral anticoagulant at all. The reason for this bridge for patients on warfarin is twofold. First, in the initial period of restarting warfarin, there could be a paradoxically increased state of coagulation without bridging. All right, so that could worsen the clot. So the reason that you bridge, number one, with a patient on warfarin is to prevent that paradoxically increased state of coagulation at the start of warfarin therapy. And then the second reason is that due to warfarin's mechanism of action and the long half-life of some coagulation factors, the effects of warfarin to provide a therapeutic level of anticoagulation do not occur immediately. Isn't that interesting? So the whole reason we bridge isn't necessarily so that they don't throw the clot by themselves. It's so that they don't throw a clot when they're restarting warfarin post-op and to minimize their time that they are off anticoagulation. Because direct oral anticoagulants take effect immediately, they don't require bridging with unfractionated or low molecular rate heparin when starting therapy. And here's another clinical pearl. Whenever you diagnose a patient with a PE or a DVT and you're going to order them a direct oral anticoagulant, these patients don't require low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin to start at the same time. Just give them the direct oral anticoagulant by themselves. This does not require bridge therapy. So once again, before we get into the data, for the purpose of this podcast, we're not focusing on those who are on unfractionated heparin or lovenox, because that's an easier idea. Bridging therapy, again, typically assumes that the patient is on a chronic oral form of anticoagulation, again with a switch to a slower-acting form perioperatively. So in this case, we're going to consider that the patient is having an elective surgical procedure because cases done under anticoagulation in an emergent case is a whole separate issue. You have to reverse them. Uh, you have to get um, recombinant factors on standby and obviously type and cross. So for this episode, remember, we're talking about oral anticoagulation, typically warfarin or one of the oral DOACs, and we're talking about elective gynecological surgery. And for this case, that can be either a hysterectomy, ovarian cystectomy, or something else. But remember, this is an elective scheduled case for the purpose of our podcast. All right, remember we said that choosing to do this bridging therapy when it applies is that balancing act between the risk of intraop bleeding and the risk of them developing a VTE. So part of that issue, the first step in this game, in this algorithm, is to determine bleeding risk. As a general rule, procedures are divided into low or moderate risk, kind of grouped together, and then moderate and high risk as another group. Examples of high bleeding risk procedures include things like coronary artery bypass surgery, kidney biopsy, and any procedure lasting greater than 45 minutes. Of course, as gynecology, we don't typically do coronary artery bypass or kidney biopsies, but we can do procedures that last greater than 45 minutes. Low bleeding risk procedures includes things in general surgery like cholecystectomy and in gynecology, things like simple cystectomy or even abdominal hysterectomy. Yeah, abdominal hysterectomy actually, believe it or not, is under low bleeding risk. Now we're talking about a typical benign hysterectomy, not a lot of dissection, not going into the pelvic sidewall. 
laparoscopic hysterectomy actually, though, is considered a moderate or high category based on some expert opinions because the laparoscopic entry puts vascular issues at risk, right? The most complicated part of a laparoscopic surgery isn't actually the dissection, it's entry, since most of the complications can be traced to laparoscopic port entry. Now, here's a big disclosure. There's no formal agreement upon which surgery is actually lower moderate risk and which is moderate and high risk. I mean, some things make sense, right? I mean, if you're doing a huge exoneration, that's obviously high risk. If you're doing a simple cystectomy, that's low risk. But most other things that we do in OBGYN surgery land somewhere in the middle. This is more of expert opinion than an established norm. But there is some guidance, and I'm going to explain that to you in just a minute. Some experts consider any inpatient surgery as a major risk factor for bleeding, while others say that unless there's major peritoneal or vaginal or vulvar dissection, then most gynecological surgery is in the low to moderate risk category. One of the nicest tables that I've come across, which categorizes bleeding risk for gin surgeries, can be found online and is from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, available as an online appendix. It's called Common Procedures and Associated Procedural Bleed Risk, and it can be found online under the JACC Journal. That's the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. All right, podcast family, if I remember, I'm going to put that link to that table on our Facebook page, all right? Because I think it's a good resource. I usually teach on that, uh, and so I'll put that online on our Facebook page after this podcast. All right, so that's one side of the coin. Remember, we just talked about bleeding risk assessment, which procedures are high risk, because that's an issue to consider. If you're doing a very complicated surgery with the risk of bleeding, then obviously you want to hold an anticoagulant. But the other side of the coin is the patient's risk of VTE off anticoagulation. So who are those at risk of VTE? So let me make this easy, all right? Here's the evidence-based breakdown of those who should be considered peri-op bridge candidates. Everybody good? So for the others, you can kind of stop. But for those that are at risk of VTE, I'm going to tell you, and it's very simple because there's only three categories of those at high risk for perioperative venous thromboembolic events that should be considered candidates either for bridge or for continuation in the immediate post-op interval of anticoagulants. All right, hold on, hold on. I got to make a quick disclosure here, a quick clarification rather, about what we're talking about, all right? Because remember, we're talking about the groups of patients that are at highest risk of recurrent VTE in the periop interval, but these patients are already on chronic anticoagulation. All right. In other words, those that you should really consider for bridge therapy, unless they're on direct oral anticoagulants, because you don't need to bridge those. We're going to get into that in a minute. But this is different than choosing to use Lovenox in addition to SCDs for the class three obese patient who's getting a C-section, for example. That's prophylaxis. That's different. What I'm talking about here is bridge therapy, those patients already on oral anticoagulation and who are at highest risk of another VTE event off medication. And those are three different groups of people, and I'm going to tell you who they are right now. The first category of those at highest risk for VTE are those with recurrent VTE diagnoses. Now, those include people who have had a venous thromboembolic event within the previous three months of the scheduled surgery. 
Also are those individuals who require a higher than normal INR for therapy. In other words, those who have an INR greater than three are considered at high risk of recurrent VTE. The second category has to do with women with AFib, but not every woman with AFib. It's those women with atrial fibrillation who meet one or more of these additional high-risk categories. All right, everybody good? So it's easy. It's women who have AFib who've had a stroke or TIA within the last three months before the scheduled surgery. And here's another group of women with AFib who are at high risk of VTE. Women who have three of the following four issues are also at risk. So everybody good? We're talking about AFib. Those who've had a stroke or TIA within the first three months is the first category. And then the second is those who've had a stroke or TIA at any time with AFib who also have three out of the following four conditions. Congestive heart failure hypertension, age 75 or more, or diabetes. The third and final category of those at highest risk off anticoagulation are those with mechanical heart valves. So let's recap that real quick. Those three categories who are at highest risk of recurrent VTE. One, those with a history of recent VTE. Second, those who have AFib and have had a stroke or TIA within the last three months or who have had that at any time but with CHF, hypertension, age greater than 75 for diabetes, or the third group, those with mechanical heart valves. See? Super easy. Moving on. Now that we've covered that, let's look at how to actually do this. This, of course, depends on what the patient is taking pre-op. So let's start with the old-school med warfarin. Yep, good old rat poison. Warfarin competitively inhibits the vitamin K epoxide reductase complex 1. That's an essential enzyme for activating the vitamin K available in the body. Through this mechanism, warfarin can deplete functional vitamin K reserves and thereby reduce the synthesis of active clotting factors. Now, here's a clinical pearl in case someone is really type A and really trying to push you into the corner there in your oral boards. So if they ever ask, well, You've mentioned warfarin. What exactly does warfarin knock out? And you say, well, vitamin K clotting factors. But then they say, well, which ones? Well, here's an easy way to remember. Super easy. Two, seven, nine, ten. Two, seven, nine, ten. There you go. Warfarin also hits anticoagulant proteins, CNS. So two, seven, nine, ten, and CNS. This medication is monitored by the prothrombin time, or the PT, which is reported as the standardized ratio called the INR. Although warfarin has been largely replaced by the newer, more novel DOACs, warfarin is still around, especially for those with mechanical heart valves. Remember that as of now, vitamin K antagonists, or warfarin, are the only anticoagulants licensed for use in patients with mechanical heart valves. Here's how to bridge patients on warfarin who are at high risk of VTE when off-established anticoagulation. Well, who are those? We just covered that, all right? So that's the first question. Well, explain to me how you would bridge a patient who has one on warfarin. Well, the first answer is, I'm sorry, do they fit one of the high-risk VTE categories? Those with AFib, those with a recent VTE, and then those who have had mechanical heart valves. Those are the same categories that we just discussed. That's why we cover those. So that's the first clinical pearl. If they fit into one of those three categories, then they need some kind of bridge therapy. All patients taking warfarin need to stop the treatment five days before surgery. That's pre-op T-5. We always teach our patients to like they're on the countdown when they're on this anticoagulation. So we do it minus T-5, T-1, which is one day before surgery, T-0, that's a day of surgery. 
I don't know, it makes sense to us, and that's how I've always taught it. So T minus 5, stop warfarin. Why does that matter? Because you start Lovenox on T minus 3. Everybody good? So Lovenox changes over to T minus 3 when they're in this transition getting off warfarin. So stop warfarin, T minus 5. Start weight-based BID scheduling of Lovenox on T minus 3. The last dose of this medication is on T minus one. In other words, 24 hours before surgery. So if surgery is on Monday, they stop on Sunday. Everybody good? Stop warfarin T minus five. Start weight-based BID scheduling. That's treatment dose Lovenox on T minus three with the last dose T minus one. Well, that's the bridge. Now that's easy. That's the bridge up to surgery. But when do you start it back up after surgery? Well, full-dose anticoagulation should not be restarted until at least 48 hours after procedures that have had a high bleeding risk. In other words, a lot of dissection, or especially if there was a lot of intra-bleeding, wait 48 hours. Although, you can continue thromboprophylactic doses of Lovenox, and that can be started within 24 hours post-op. Typically, low molecular weight heparin is started anywhere from 12 or 24 hours after the surgery based on their level of bleeding risk. All right, so minor, everything went well, she's very dry, then start Lovenox prophylactically at 12 hours or at 24. And then if they had high risk of bleeding or had actual intraoperative bleeding, you may want to hold off until 48 hours. Warfarin can be resumed at that normal maintenance dose. In other words, the same dose they were taking before surgery. And they can restart that the evening after surgery or the next day. In other words, it's perfectly fine to resume warfarin 12 to 24 hours post-op if hemostasis was considered adequate because the onset of action of warfarin is slow and it takes about three to five days to get the desired INR. So it's okay to start quickly knowing it's going to take a while to get to that INR stage. This, again, is the same dose that the patient was taking pre-op. Bridge therapy with Lovenox should be continued until the INR is in that therapeutic range. That's how to manage the anticoag bridge for patients on warfarin. And now when we come back, a quick word about direct oral anticoagulants. Direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, are two types, factor 10A inhibitors and factors acting directly on thrombin as thrombin inhibitors. The more well-known and most commonly used anti-factor 10A agents are Xarelto and Eliquis. The most commonly used thrombin inhibitor is Pradaxa. Now, here's a clinical pearl. Yes, I gave you brand names on the oral boards. Try to use generic names, but I really can't stand the generic names. They're really hard for me. So, I go with Xarelto, Eliquis, and Pradaxa. And yes, you can say brand name on the oral boards, although the generics are preferred. One of the main advantages of these kinds of agents is that they are easier to use, and of course, you don't require serum monitoring. DOACs are much better when patients are on this in the periop interval, and they have a surgery planned. Perioperatively, individuals with DOACs will have an overall shorter period without anticoagulation than those who interrupt therapy with warfarin because these medications, DOACs, have rapid resolution of anticoagulant effect when they're discontinued pre-op and they rapidly resume their effect when they're restarted post-op. Everybody good? That's why you don't really need to do a bridge with DOACs because you pretty much turn off the water faucet and then turn it back on and it works very quickly. 
the evidence that these patients don't need periop bridge doesn't actually come from gynecology, but is extrapolated from the PAUSE study. That's P-A-U-S-E. These were the high-risk AFib patients that we talked about before. And this study proved that it was safe, again, to not do bridge therapy for patients on DOACs. Yep, no bridge, even for AFib, if they were on these direct oral anticoagulants because of how they work. Here's what this looks like. For those with a low to moderate risk of bleeding with surgery, the DOAC can be stopped one day before surgery and just restarted at the normal dose 24 hours post-op. So that was two days of medication interruption, one day before surgery, and then 24 hours post-op when they were off medication. This has been proven to be safe and it's evidence-based. For those with a high bleeding risk during surgery, the DOAC can be stopped two days before surgery and then resumed two days after surgery. So for a total of four days. I know that's kind of making people uncomfortable because you're saying that for two days, up to four days, no bridge therapy. Um, Yeah, as long as they're on DOACs, that's actually evidence-based. And the most recent publication that justified that or validated that comes from 2022. Out of the National Library of Medicine, the title is Perioperative Anticoagulation Management, and it's actually out of Stat Pearls. The lead author is Javier Polania Gutierrez, and this was released on January the 26th, 2022. As stated in that review, quote, it's important to note that bridging therapy is not indicated in patients on DOACs. The predictable pharmacological effect of DOACs allows a properly timed interruption of anticoagulant therapy before surgery. Various societies have issued these recommendations about the timing of discontinuation of DOACs, and these include the American College of Cardiology Expert Consensus Statement, the European Heart and Rhythm Association, and the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, end quote. Back to the PAUSE study. Although this was exclusively done in individuals with AFib, management lessons from PAUSE can be applied to patients receiving direct oral anticoagulant therapy for other kinds of surgeries. The style of management for direct oral anticoagulants is not just for the anti-10A options, but it's also valid for the thrombin inhibitors as well. That is, no bridge is needed. The rapid action offset and onset of these medications makes bridging unnecessary. All right, podcast family, I hope that helped as we covered bridging therapy in the gynecological scheduled surgical patient. Ana, Luis, I hope that made sense. Just send me a quick message that you got it, and I hope that helps you prepare for the oral boards. As always, we're thankful for you, and we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls. Clinical Pearls.